Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Adventure 8 in His Last Bow by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Adventure 8. The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. In recording from time to time some of the curious experiences and interesting recollections which I associate with my long and intimate friendship with Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I have continually been faced by difficulties caused by his own aversion to publicity. To his sombre and cynical spirit, all popular applause was always abhorrent, and nothing amused him more at the end of a successful case than to hand over the actual exposure to some orthodox official and to listen with a mocking smile to the general chorus of misplaced congratulation. It was indeed this attitude upon the part of my friend, and certainly not any lack of interesting material, which has caused me of late years to lay very few of my records before the public. My participation in some of his adventures was always a privilege which entailed discretion and reticence upon me. It was then, with considerable surprise, that I received a telegram from Holmes last Tuesday. He's never been known to write where a telegram would serve, in the following terms. Why not tell them of the Cornish horror? Strangest case I have handled. I have no idea what backward sweep of memory had brought the matter fresh to his mind, or what freak had caused him to desire that I should recount it. But I hasten, before another cancelling telegram may arrive, to hunt out the notes which give me the exact details of the case and to lay the narrative before my readers. It was, then, in the spring of the year 1897, that Holmes' iron constitution showed some symptoms of giving way in the face of constant hard work of a most exacting kind, aggravated perhaps by occasional indiscretions of his own. In March of that year, a Dr. Moore Agar of Harley Street, whose dramatic introduction to Holmes I may some day recount, gave positive injunctions that the famous private agent lay aside all his cases and surrender himself to complete rest if he wished to avert an absolute breakdown. The state of his health was not a matter in which he himself took the faintest interest, for his mental detachment was absolute, but he was induced at last, on the threat of being permanently disqualified from work, to give himself a complete change of scene and air. Thus it was that in the early spring of that year we found ourselves together in a small cottage near Poldu Bay, at the further extremity of the Cornish Peninsula. It was a singular spot, and one peculiarly well suited to the grim humour of my patient. From the windows of our little whitewashed house, which stood high upon a grassy headland, we looked down upon the whole sinister semicircle of Mounts Bay, that old death-trap of sailing vessels with its fringe of black cliffs and surge-swept reefs, on which innumerable seamen have met their end. With a northerly breeze it lies placid and sheltered, inviting the storm-tossed craft to tack into it for rest and protection. Then come the sudden swirl round of the wind, the blistering gale from the southwest, 
the dragging anchor, the lee shore, and the last battle in the creaming breakers. The wise mariner stands far out from that evil place. On the land side our surroundings were as sombre as on the sea. It was a country of rolling moors, lonely and dun-coloured, with an occasional church tower to mark the site of some old-world village. In every direction, upon these moors, there were traces of some vanished race which had passed utterly away, and left as its sole record strange monuments of stone, irregular mounds which contained the burned ashes of the dead, and curious earthworks which hinted at prehistoric strife. The glamour and mystery of the place, with its sinister atmosphere of forgotten nations, appealed to the imagination of my friend, and he spent much of his time in long walks and solitary meditations upon the moor. The ancient Cornish language had also arrested his attention, and he had, I remember, conceived the idea that it was akin to the Chaldean, and had been largely derived from the Phoenician traders in tin. He had received a consignment of books upon philology, and was settling down to develop this thesis, when, suddenly, to my sorrow and to his unfeigned delight, we found ourselves, even in that land of dreams, plunged into a problem at our very doors, which was more intense, more engrossing, and infinitely more mysterious than any of those which had driven us from London. Our simple life and peaceful, healthy routine were violently interrupted, and we were precipitated into the midst of a series of events which caused the utmost excitement, not only in Cornwall, but throughout the whole west of England. Many of my readers may retain some recollection of what was called at the time the Cornish Horror, though a most imperfect account of the matter reached the London press. Now, after thirteen years, I will give the true details of this inconceivable affair to the public. I have said that scattered towers marked the villages which dotted this part of Cornwall. The nearest of these was the hamlet of Tridanic Wallace, where the cottages of a couple of hundred inhabitants clustered round an ancient moss-grown church. The vicar of the parish, Mr. Roundhay, was something of an archaeologist, and as such Holmes had made his acquaintance. He was a middle-aged man, portly and affable, with a considerable fund of local lore. At his invitation we had taken tea at the vicarage, and had come to know also Mr. Mortimer Tregenis, an independent gentleman, who increased the clergyman's scanty resources by taking rooms in his large, straggling house. The vicar, being a bachelor, was glad to come to such an arrangement, though he had little in common with his lodger, who was a thin, dark, spectacled man, with a stoop which gave the impression of actual physical deformity. I remember that during our short visit we found the vicar garrulous, but his lodger strangely reticent, a sad-faced, introspective man, sitting with averted eyes, brooding, apparently, upon his own affairs. These were the two men who entered abruptly into our little sitting-room on Tuesday, March the 16th, shortly after our breakfast hour, as we were smoking together, preparatory to our daily excursion upon the moors. "'Mr. Holmes,' said the vicar in an agitated voice, "'the most extraordinary and tragic affair has occurred during the night. It is the most unheard-of business. We can only regard it as a special providence that you should chance to be here at the time, for in all England you are the one man we need.' 
I glared at the intrusive vicar with no very friendly eyes, but Holmes took his pipe from his lips and sat up in his chair like an old hound who hears the view hallo. He waved his hand to the sofa, and our palpitating visitor with his agitated companion sat side by side upon it. Mr. Mortimer Tregenis was more self-contained than the clergyman, but the twitching of his thin hands and the brightness of his dark eyes showed that they shared a common emotion. "'Shall I speak, or you?' he asked of the vicar. "'Well, as you seem to have made the discovery, whatever it may be, and the vicar to have had it second-hand, perhaps you'd better do the speaking,' said Holmes. I glanced at the hastily clad clergyman, with the formally dressed lodger seated beside him, and was amused at the surprise which Holmes's simple deduction had brought to their faces. "'Perhaps I'd best say a few words first said the vicar, and then you can judge if you will listen to the details from Mr. Tregenis, or whether we should not hasten at once to the scene of this mysterious affair. I may explain, then, that our friend here spent last evening in the company of his two brothers, Owen and George, and of his sister Brenda, at their house of Tredanic Wather, which is near the old stone across upon the moor. He left them shortly after ten o'clock, playing cards round the dining-room table, in excellent health and spirits. This morning, being an early riser, he walked in that direction before breakfast, and was overtaken by the carriage of Dr. Richards, who explained that he had just been sent for on a most urgent call to Tredanic Wather. Mr. Mortimer Tregenis naturally went with him. When he arrived at Tredanic Wather, he found an extraordinary state of things. His two brothers and his sister were seated round the table exactly as he left them, the cards still spread in front of them, and the candles burned down to their sockets. The sister lay back stone dead in her chair, while the two brothers sat on each side of her, laughing, shouting, and singing, the senses stricken clean out of them. All three of them, the dead woman and the two demented men, retained upon their faces an expression of the utmost horror, a convulsion of terror which was dreadful to look upon. There was no sign of the presence of anyone in the house, except Mrs. Porter, the old cook and housekeeper, who declared that she had slept deeply and heard no sound during the night. Nothing had been stolen or disarranged, and there is absolutely no explanation of what the horror can be which has frightened a woman to death and two strong men out of their senses. There's the situation, Mr. Holmes, in a nutshell, and if you can help us to clear it up, you will have done a great work." I had hoped that in some way I could coax my companion back into the quiet which had been the object of our journey. But one glance at his intense face and contracted eyebrows told me how vain was now the expectation. He sat for some little time in silence, absorbed in the strange drama which had broken in upon our peace. "'I will look into this matter,' he said at last. "'On the face of it, it would appear to be a case of very exceptional nature.' "'Have you been there yourself, Mr. Roundhay?' "'No, Mr. Holmes. Mr. Tregenis brought back the account to the vicarage, and I at once hurried over with him to consult you.' "'How far is it to the house where this singular tragedy occurred?' "'About a mile inland.' "'Then we shall walk over together. But before we start, I must ask you some questions, Mr. Mortimer Tregenis.' The other had been silent all this time but I had observed that his more controlled excitement, 
was even greater than the obtrusive emotion of the clergyman. He sat with a pale, drawn face, his anxious gaze fixed upon Holmes, and his thin hands clasped convulsively together. His pale lips quivered as he listened to the dreadful experience which had befallen his family, and his dark eyes seemed to reflect something of the horror of the scene. "'Ask what you like, Mr. Holmes,' said he eagerly. "'It is a bad thing to speak of, but I will answer you the truth.' "'Tell me about last night.' "'Well, Mr. Holmes, I supped there, as the vicar has said, and my elder brother George proposed a game of whist afterwards. We sat down about nine o'clock. It was a quarter-past ten when I moved to go. I left them all round the table, as merry as could be. Who let you out?' "'Mrs. Porter had gone to bed, so I let myself out. I shut the hall-door behind me. The window of the room in which they sat was closed.' but the blind was not drawn down. There was no change in door or window this morning, or any reason to think that any stranger had been to the house. Yet there they sat, driven clean mad with terror, and Brenda lying dead of fright, with her head hanging over the arm of the chair. I'll never get the sight of that room out of my mind, so long as I live. "'The facts as you state them are certainly most remarkable,' said Holmes. I take it that you have no theory yourself which can in any way account for them?" "'It's devilish, Mr. Holmes, devilish!' cried Mortimer Tregenis. "'It is not of this world. Something has come into that room which has dashed the light of reason from their minds. What human contrivance could do that?' "'I fear,' said Holmes, "'that if the matter is beyond humanity it is certainly beyond me. Yet we must exhaust all natural explanations before we fall back upon such a theory as this.' As to yourself, Mr. Degenis, I take it you were divided in some way from your family since they lived together and you had some rooms apart. That is so, Mr. Holmes, though the matter is past and done with. We were a family of tin miners at Redruth, but we sold our venture to a company and so retired with enough to keep us. I won't deny that there was some feeling about the division of the money, and it stood between us for a time, but it was all forgiven and forgotten, and we were the best of friends together. Looking back at the evening which you spent together, does anything stand out in your memory as throwing any possible light upon the tragedy? Think carefully, Mr. Tugenis, for any clue which can help me. There's nothing at all, sir. Your people were in the usual spirits? Never better. Were they nervous people? Did they ever show any apprehension of coming danger? Nothing of the kind. You have nothing to add, then, which could assist me. Mortimer Tregenis considered earnestly for a moment. "'There is one thing occurs to me,' said he at last. "'As we sat at the table, my back was to the window, and my brother George, he being my partner at cards, was facing it. I saw him once look hard over my shoulder, so I turned round and looked also. The blind was up, and the window shut, but I could just make out the bushes on the lawn, and it seemed to me for a moment that I saw something moving among them. I couldn't even say if it was man or animal, but I just thought there was something there. When I asked him what he was looking at, he told me that he had the same feeling. That is all that I can say." "'Did you not investigate?' "'No. The matter passed as unimportant.' "'You left them, then, without any premonition of evil?' "'None at all.' I am not clear how you came to hear the news so early this morning. 
I am an early riser and generally take a walk before breakfast. This morning I had hardly started when the doctor in his carriage overtook me. He told me that old Mrs. Porter had sent a boy down with an urgent message. I sprang in beside him and we drove on. When we got there we looked into that dreadful room. The candles and the fire must have burned out hours before, and they had been sitting there in the dark until dawn had broken. The doctor said Brenda must have been dead at least six hours. There were no signs of violence. She just lay across the arm of the chair with that look on her face. George and Owen were singing snatches of songs and gibbering like two great apes. Oh, it was awful to see. I couldn't stand it, and the doctor was as white as a sheet. Indeed, he fell into a chair in a sort of faint, and we nearly had him on our hands as well. Remarkable. Most remarkable said Holmes, rising and taking his hat. I think perhaps we'd better go down to Tredanic Wather without further delay. I confess that I have seldom known a case which at first sight presented a more singular problem. Our proceedings that first morning did little to advance the investigation. It was marked, however, at the outset by an incident which left the most sinister impression upon my mind. The approach to the spot at which the tragedy occurred is down a narrow, winding country lane. While we made our way along it, we heard the rattle of a carriage coming towards us, and stood aside to let it pass. As it drove by us, I caught a glimpse through the closed window of a horribly contorted, grinning face glaring out at us. Those staring eyes and gnashing teeth flashed past us like a dreadful vision. "'My brothers!' cried Mortimer Tregenis, white to his lips. "'They are taking them to Helston!' We looked with horror after the black carriage lumbering upon its way. Then we turned our steps toward this ill-omened house in which they had met their strange fate. It was a large and bright dwelling, rather a villa than a cottage, with a considerable garden which was already, in that Cornish air, well filled with spring flowers. Towards this garden the window of the sitting-room fronted, and from it, according to Mortimer Tregenis, must have come that thing of evil which had, by sheer horror, in a single instant, blasted their minds. Holmes walked slowly and thoughtfully among the flower-pots, and along the path before we entered the porch. So absorbed was he in his thoughts, I remember, that he stumbled over the watering-pot, upset its contents, and deluged both our feet and the garden path. Inside the house we were met by the elderly Cornish housekeeper, Mrs. Porter, who, with the aid of a young girl, looked after the wants of the family. She readily answered all Holmes's questions. She had heard nothing in the night. Her employers had all been in excellent spirits lately, and she had never known them more cheerful and prosperous. She had fainted with horror upon entering the room in the morning, and seeing that dreadful company around the table. She had, when she recovered, thrown open the window to let the morning air in, and had run down to the lane when she sent a farm lad for the doctor. The lady was on her bed upstairs if we cared to see her. It took four strong men to get the brothers into the asylum carriage. She would not herself stay in the house another day, and was starting that very afternoon to rejoin her family at St. Ives. We ascended the stairs and viewed the body. Miss Brenda Tregenis had been a very beautiful girl, though now verging upon middle age. Her dark, clear-cut face was handsome even in death, but there still lingered upon it 
something of that convulsion of horror which had been her last human emotion. From her bedroom we descended to the sitting-room, where this strange tragedy had actually occurred. The charred ashes of the overnight fire lay in the grate. On the table were the four guttered and burned-out candles, with the cards scattered over its surface. The chairs had been moved back against the walls, but all else was as it had been the night before. Holmes paced with light, swift steps about the room. He sat in the various chairs, drawing them up and reconstructing their positions. He tested how much of the garden was visible. He examined the floor, the ceiling, and the fireplace, but never once did I see that sudden brightening of his eyes and tightening of his lips which would have told me that he saw some gleam of light in this utter darkness. "'Why a fire?' he asked once. "'Have they always a fire in this small room on a spring evening?' Mortimer Tregenis explained that the night was cold and damp. For that reason, after his arrival, the fire was lit. "'What are you going to do now, Mr. Holmes?' he asked. My friend smiled and laid his hand upon my arm. "'I think, Watson, that I shall resume that course of tobacco poisoning which you have so often and so justly condemned,' said he. "'With your permission, gentlemen, we will now return to our cottage, for I am not aware that any new factor is likely to come to our notice here. I will turn the facts over in my mind, Mr. Tregenis, and should anything occur to me, I will certainly communicate with you and the vicar. In the meantime, I wish you both good morning. It was not until long after we were back in Poldew Cottage that Holmes broke his complete and absorbed silence. He sat coiled in his armchair, his haggard and ascetic face hardly visible amid the blue swirl of his tobacco smoke, his black brows drawn down, his forehead contracted, his eyes vacant and far away. Finally, he laid down his pipe and sprang to his feet. "'It won't do, Watson,' said he with a laugh. "'Let us walk along the cliffs together and search for flint arrows. We are more likely to find them than clues to this problem.' To let the brain work without sufficient material is like racing an engine. It racks itself to pieces. The sea air, sunshine, and patience, Watson. All else will come. Now let us calmly define our position, Watson, he continued as we skirted the cliffs together. Let us get a firm grip of the very little which we do know, so that when fresh facts arise we may be ready to fit them into their places. I take it in the first place that neither of us is prepared to admit diabolical intrusions into the affairs of men. Let us begin by ruling that entirely out of our minds. Very good. There remain three persons who have been grievously stricken by some conscious or unconscious human agency. That is firm ground. Now, when did this occur? Evidently, assuming his narrative to be true, it was immediately after Mr. Mortimer Tregenis had left the room. That is a very important point. The presumption is that it was within a few minutes afterwards. The cards still lay upon the table. It was already past their usual hour for bed, yet they had not changed their position or pushed back their chairs. I repeat, then, that the occurrence was immediately after his departure, and not later than eleven o'clock last night. Our next obvious step is to check, 
so far as we can, the movements of Mortimer Tregenis after he left the room. In this there is no difficulty, and they seem to be above suspicion. Knowing my methods as you do, you were, of course, conscious of the somewhat clumsy water-pot expedient by which I obtained a clearer impress of his foot than might otherwise have been possible. The wet, sandy path took it admirably. Last night was also wet, you will remember, and it was not difficult, having obtained a sample print, to pick out his track among others and to follow his movements. He appears to have walked away swiftly in the direction of the vicarage. If, then, Mortimer Tregenis disappeared from the scene, and yet some outside person affected the card-players, how can we reconstruct that person, and how was such an impression of horror conveyed? Mrs. Porter may be eliminated. She is evidently harmless. Is there any evidence that someone crept up to the garden window, and in some manner produced so terrific an effect that he drove those who saw it out of their senses? The only suggestion in this direction comes from Mortimer Tregenis himself, who says that his brother spoke about some movement in the garden. That is certainly remarkable, as the night was rainy, cloudy, and dark. Anyone who had the design to alarm these people would be compelled to place his very face against the glass before he could be seen. There is a three-foot flower border outside this window, but no indication of a footmark. It is difficult to imagine, then, how an outsider could have made so terrible an impression upon the company, nor have we found any possible motive for so strange and elaborate an attempt. You perceive our difficulties, Watson. They are only too clear, I answered with conviction. And yet, with a little more material, we may prove that they are not insurmountable, said Holmes. I fancy that among your extensive archives, Watson, you may find some which were nearly as obscure. Meanwhile, we shall put the case aside until more accurate data are available, and devote the rest of our morning to the pursuit of Neolithic man. I may have commented upon my friend's power of mental detachment, but never have I wondered at it more than upon that spring morning in Cornwall, when for two hours he discoursed upon Celts, arrowheads, and shards, as likely as if no sinister mystery were waiting for his solution. It was not until we had returned in the afternoon to our cottage that we found a visitor awaiting us, who soon brought our minds back to the matter in hand. Neither of us needed to be told who that visitor was. The huge body, the craggy and deeply seamed face, with the fierce eyes and hawk-like nose, the grizzled hair which nearly brushed our cottage ceiling, the beard, golden at the fringes and white near the lips, save for the nicotine stain from his perpetual cigar. All these were as well known in London as in Africa, and could only be associated with the tremendous personality of Dr. Leon Sterndale, the great lion-hunter and explorer. We had heard of his presence in the district, and had once or twice caught sight of his tall figure upon the moorland paths. He made no advances to us, however, nor would we have dreamed of doing so to him, as it was well known that it was his love of seclusion which caused him to spend the greater part of the intervals between his journeys in a small bungalow buried in the lonely wood of beauchamp Ariance. Here, amid his books and his maps, he lived an absolutely lonely life, attending to his own simple wants, 
and paying little apparent heed to the affairs of his neighbours. It was a surprise to me, therefore, to hear him asking Holmes in an eager voice whether he had made any advance in his reconstruction of this mysterious episode. "'The county police are utterly at fault,' said he. "'But perhaps your wider experience has suggested some conceivable explanation. My only claim to being taken into your confidence is that during my many residences here I have come to know this family of Tregenis very well indeed, upon my Cornish mother's side. I could call them cousins, and their strange fate has naturally been a great shock to me. I may tell you that I have got as far as Plymouth upon my way to Africa, but the news reached me this morning, and I came straight back again to help in the inquiry. Holmes raised his eyebrows. Did you lose your boat through it? I will take the next. Dear me, that is friendship indeed. I tell you, they were relatives. Quite so, uh, cousins of your mother. Uh, was your baggage aboard the ship? Some of it, but the main part at the hotel. I see. But surely this event could not have found its way into the Plymouth morning papers. No, sir, I had a telegram. Might I ask from whom? A shadow passed over the gaunt face of the explorer. You are very inquisitive, Mr. Holmes. It is my business. With an effort, Dr. Sterndale recovered his ruffled composure. I have no objection to telling you, he said. It was Mr. Rounday, the vicar, who sent me the telegram which recalled me. Thank you, said Holmes. I may say in answer to your original question that I have not cleared my mind entirely on the subject of this case, but that I have every hope of reaching some conclusion. It would be premature to say more. Perhaps you would not mind telling me if your suspicions point in any particular direction. No, I can hardly answer that. And I have wasted my time and need not prolong my visit. The famous doctor strode out of our cottage in considerable ill-humour, and within five minutes Holmes had followed him. I saw him no more until the evening when he returned with a slow step and haggard face, which assured me that he had made no great progress with his investigation. He glanced at a telegram which awaited him, and threw it into the grate. "'From the Plymouth Hotel, Watson,' he said. I learned the name of it from the vicar, and I wired to make certain that Dr. Leon Sterndale's account was true. It appears that he did indeed spend last night there, and that he has actually allowed some of his baggage to go on to Africa, while he returned to be present at this investigation. What do you make of that, Watson? He's deeply interested. Deeply interested, yes. There is a thread here which we have not yet grasped, and which might lead us through the tangle. Cheer up, Watson, for I am very sure that our material has not yet all come to hand. When it does, we may soon leave our difficulties behind us. Little did I think how soon the words of Holmes would be realised, or how strange and sinister would be that new development which opened up an entirely fresh line of investigation. I was shaving at my window in the morning, when I heard the rattle of hoofs, and looking up, saw a dog-cart coming at a gallop down the road. It pulled up at our door, and our friend the vicar sprang from it and rushed up our garden path. Holmes was already dressed, and we hastened down to meet him. Our visitor was so excited that he could hardly articulate, but at last, in gasps 
and bursts, his tragic story came out of him. "'We are devil-ridden, Mr. Holmes, my poor parish is devil-ridden,' he cried. "'Satan himself is loose in it. We are given over into his hands.' He danced about in his agitation, a ludicrous object if it were not for his ashy face and startled eyes. Finally he shot out his terrible news. "'Mr. Mortimer Tregenis died during the night, and with exactly the same symptoms as the rest of his family.' Holmes sprang to his feet, all energy in an instant. "'Can you fit us both into your dog-cart?' "'Yes, I can.' "'Then, Watson, we will postpone our breakfast. Mr. Roundhay, we are entirely at your disposal. Hurry, hurry, before things get disarranged.' The lodger occupied two rooms at the vicarage, which were in an angle by themselves the one above the other. Below was a large sitting-room, above his bedroom. They looked out upon a croquet lawn which came up to the windows. We had arrived before the doctor or the police, so that everything was absolutely undisturbed. Let me describe exactly the scene as we saw it upon that misty March morning. It has left an impression which can never be effaced from my mind. The atmosphere of the room was of a horrible and depressing stuffiness. The servant, who had first entered, had thrown up the window, or it would have been even more intolerable. This might partly be due to the fact that a lamp stood flaring and smoking on the centre table. Beside it sat the dead man, leaning back in his chair, his thin beard projecting, his spectacles pushed up onto his forehead, and his lean dark face turned towards the window and twisted into the same direction of terror which had marked the features of his dead sister. His limbs were convulsed, and his fingers contorted, as though he had died in a very paroxysm of fear. He was fully clothed, though there were signs that his dressing had been done in a hurry. We had already learned that his bed had been slept in, and that the tragic end had come to him in the early morning. One realised the red-hot energy which underlay Holmes's phlegmatic exterior when one saw the sudden change which came over him from the moment that he entered the fatal apartment. In an instant he was tense and alert, his eyes shining, his face set, his limbs quivering with eager activity. He was out on the lawn, in through the window, round the room, and up into the bedroom, for all the world like a dashing foxhand drawing a cover. In the bedroom he made a rapid cast around, and ended by throwing open the window, which appeared to give him some fresh cause for excitement, for he leaned out of it with loud ejaculations of interest and delight. Then he rushed down the stair, out through the open window, threw himself upon his face on the lawn, sprang up and into the room once more, all with the energy of the hunter, who is at the very heels of his quarry. The lamp, which was an ordinary standard, he examined with minute care, making certain measurements upon its bowl. He carefully scrutinised with his lens the talc shield which covered the top of the chimney and scraped off some ashes which adhered to its upper surface, putting some of them into an envelope which he placed in his pocket-book. Finally, just as the doctor and the official police put in an appearance, he beckoned to the vicar and we all three went out upon the lawn. "'I am glad to say that my investigation has not been entirely barren,' he remarked. I cannot remain to discuss the matter with the police, but I should be exceedingly obliged, Mr. Roundhay, if you would give the inspector my compliments and direct his attention to the bedroom window and to the sitting-room lamp.' 
Each is suggestive, and together they are almost conclusive. If the police would desire further information, I shall be happy to see any of them at the cottage. And now, Watson, I think that perhaps we shall be better employed elsewhere. It may be that the police resented the intrusion of an amateur, or that they imagined themselves to be upon some hopeful line of investigation, but it is certain that we heard nothing from them for the next two days. During this time, Holmes spent some of his time smoking and dreaming in the cottage, but a greater portion in country walks which he undertook alone, returning after many hours without remark as to where he had been. One experiment served to show me the line of his investigation. He had bought a lamp which was the duplicate of the one which had burned in the room of Mortimer Tregenis on the morning of the tragedy. This he filled with the same oil as that used at the vicarage, and he carefully timed the period which it would take to be exhausted. Another experiment which he made was of a more unpleasant nature, and one which I am not likely ever to forget. "'You will remember, Watson,' he remarked one afternoon, "'that there is a single common point of resemblance in the varying reports which have reached us. This concerns the effect of the atmosphere of the room in each case upon those who had first entered it. You will recollect that Mortimer Tregenis, in describing the episode of his last visit to his brother's house, remarked that the doctor on entering the room fell into a chair. You had forgotten? Well, I can answer for it that it was so. Now, you will remember also that Mrs. Porter, the housekeeper, told us that she herself fainted upon entering the room, and had afterwards opened the window in the second case, that of Mortimer Tregenis himself, you cannot have forgotten the horrible stuffiness of the room when we arrived, though the servant had thrown open the window. That servant, I found upon inquiry, was so ill that she had gone to her bed. You will admit, Watson, that these facts are very suggestive. In each case there is evidence of a poisonous atmosphere. In each case, also, there is combustion going on in the room. In the one case a fire, in the other a lamp. The fire was needed, but the lamp was lit, as a comparison of the oil consumed will show, long after it was broad daylight. Why? Surely because there is some connection between three things the burning, the stuffy atmosphere, and, finally, the madness or death of those unfortunate people. That is clear, is it not? It would appear so. At least we may accept it as a working hypothesis. We will suppose, then, that something was burned in each case which produced an atmosphere causing strange, toxic effects. Very good. In the first instance, that of the Tregenis family, this substance was placed in the fire. Now the window was shut, but the fire would naturally carry fumes to some extent up the chimney. Hence one would expect the effects of the poison to be less than in the second case, where there was less escape for the vapour. The result seems to indicate that it was so, since in the first case only the woman, who had presumably the more sensitive organism, was killed the others exhibiting that temporary or permanent lunacy which is evidently the first effect of the drug. In the second case the result was complete. The facts, therefore, seem to bear out the theory of a poison which worked by combustion. With this train of reasoning in my head, 
I naturally looked about in Mortimer Tregennis's room to find some remains of this substance. The obvious place to look was the talc-shelf, or smoke-guard of the lamp. There, sure enough, I perceived a number of flaky ashes, and round the edges a fringe of brownish powder, which had not yet been consumed. Half of this I took as you saw, and I placed it in an envelope. Why half, Holmes? It is not for me, my dear Watson, to stand in the way of the official police force. I leave them all the evidence which I found. The poison still remained upon the talc, had they the wit to find it. Now, Watson, we will light our lamp. We will, however, take the precaution to open our window to avoid the premature decease of two deserving members of society, and you will seat yourself near that open window in an armchair, unless, like a sensible man, you determine to have nothing to do with the affair. Oh, you will see it out, will you? I thought I knew my Watson. This chair I will place opposite yours, so that we may be the same distance from the poison and face to face. The door we will leave ajar. Each is now in a position to watch the other and to bring the experiment to an end should the symptoms seem alarming. Is that all clear? Well then, I take our powder, or what remains of it, from the envelope, and I lay it above the burning lamp. So. Now, Watson, let us sit down and await developments. They were not long in coming. I had hardly settled in my chair before I was conscious of a thick, musky odour, subtle and nauseous. At the very first whiff of it, my brain and my imagination were beyond all control. A thick black cloud swirled before my eyes, and my mind told me that in this cloud, unseen as yet, but about to spring out upon my appalled senses, lurked all that was vaguely horrible, all that was monstrous and inconceivably wicked in the universe. Vague shapes swirled and swam amid the dark cloud-bank, each a menace and a warning of something coming, the advent of some unspeakable dweller upon the threshold whose very shadow would blast my soul. A freezing horror took possession of me. I felt that my hair was rising, that my eyes were protruding, that my mouth was opened and my tongue like leather. The turmoil within my brain was such that something must surely snap. I tried to scream and was vaguely aware of some hoarse croak which was my own voice, but distant and detached from myself. At the same moment, in some effort of escape, I broke through that cloud of despair and had a glimpse of Holmes's face, white, rigid, and drawn with horror, the very look which I had seen upon the features of the dead. It was that vision which gave me an instant of sanity and of strength. I dashed from my chair, threw my arms round Holmes, and together we lurched through the door, and an instant afterwards had thrown ourselves down upon the grass plot, and were lying side by side, conscious only of the glorious sunshine which was bursting its way through the hellish cloud of terror which had girt us in. Slowly it rose from our souls like the mists from a landscape, until peace and reason had returned, and we were sitting upon the grass, wiping our clammy foreheads and looking with apprehension at each other to mark the last traces of that terrific experience which we had undergone. "'Upon my word, Watson,' said Holmes at last with an unsteady voice, "'I owe you both my thanks and an apology. It was an unjustifiable experiment, even for one's self, and doubly so for a friend. I'm really very sorry.' 
"'You know,' I answered with some emotion, for I have never seen so much of Holmes's heart before, "'that it is my greatest joy and privilege to help you.' He relapsed at once into the half-humorous, half-cynical vein which was his habitual attitude to those about him. "'It would be superfluous to drive us mad, my dear Watson,' said he. "'A candid observer would certainly declare that we were so already before we embarked upon so wild an experiment.' I confess that I never imagined that the effect would be so sudden and so severe. He dashed into the cottage, and, reappearing with the burning lamp held at full arm's length, he threw it among a bank of brambles. We must give the room a little time to clear. I take it, Watson, that you have no longer a shadow of a doubt as to how these tragedies were produced? None whatever. But the cause remains as obscure as before. Come into the arbour here, and let us discuss it together. That villainous stuff seems still to linger round my throat. I think we must admit that all the evidence points to this man Mortimer Tregenis having been the criminal in the first tragedy, though he was the victim in the second one. We must remember, in the first place, that there is some story of a family quarrel followed by a reconciliation. How bitter that quarrel may have been! or how hollow the reconciliation, we cannot tell. When I think of Mortimer Tregenis, with the foxy face and the small, shrewd, beady eyes behind the spectacles, he is not a man whom I should judge to be of a particularly forgiving disposition. Well, in the next place, you will remember that this idea of someone moving in the garden, which took our attention for a moment from the real cause of the tragedy, emanated from him. He had a motive in misleading us. Finally, if he did not throw the substance into the fire at the moment of leaving the room, who did do so? The affair happened immediately after his departure. Had anyone else come in, the family would certainly have risen from the table. Besides, in peaceful Cornwall, visitors did not arrive after ten o'clock at night. We may take it, then, that all the evidence points to Mortimer Tregenis as the culprit. Then his own death was suicide. Well, Watson, it is on the face of it a not impossible supposition. The man who had the guilt upon his soul of having brought such a fate upon his own family might well be driven by remorse to inflict it upon himself. There are, however, some cogent reasons against it. Fortunately, there is one man in England who knows all about it, and I have made arrangements by which we shall hear the facts this afternoon from his own lips. Ah, he is a little before his time. Perhaps you would kindly step this way, Dr. Leon Sterndale. We have been conducing a chemical experiment indoors which has left our little room hardly fit for the reception of so distinguished a visitor. I had heard the click of the garden gate, and now the majestic figure of the great African explorer appeared upon the path. He turned in some surprise towards the rustic arbour in which we sat. "'You sent for me, Mr. Holmes?' I had your note about an hour ago, and I have come, though I really do not know why I should obey your summons. Perhaps we can clear the point up before we separate, said Holmes. Meanwhile, I am much obliged to you for your courteous acquiescence. You will excuse this informal reception in the open air, but my friend Watson and I have nearly furnished an additional chapter to what the papers call the Cornish Horror, and we prefer a clear atmosphere for the present. Perhaps, since the matters which we have to discuss will affect you personally in a very intimate fashion, 
it is as well that we should talk where there can be no eavesdropping. The explorer took his cigar from his lips and gazed sternly at my companion. I am at a loss to know, sir, he said, what you can have to speak about which affects me personally in a very intimate fashion. The killing of Mortimer Tregenis, said Holmes. For a moment I wished that I were armed. Sterndale's fierce face turned to a dusky red, his eyes glared, and the knotted, passionate veins started out in his forehead, while he sprang forward with clenched hands toward my companion. Then he stopped, and with a violent effort he resumed a cold, rigid calmness, which was perhaps more suggestive of danger than his hot-headed outburst. "'I've oh, lived so long among savages and beyond the law,' said he, "'that I've got me into the way of being a law to myself.' You would do well, Mr. Holmes, not to forget it, for I have no desire to do you an injury. Nor have I any desire to do you an injury, Dr. Sterndale. Surely the clearest proof of it is that, knowing what I know, I have sent for you, and not for the police. Sterndale sat down with a gasp, overawed for perhaps the first time in his adventurous life. There was a calm assurance of power in Holmes's manner which could not be withstood. Our visitor stammered for a moment, his great hands opening and shutting in his agitation. "'What do you mean?' he asked at last. "'If this is a bluff upon your part, Mr. Holmes, you've chosen a bad man for your experiment. Let us have no more beaten about the bush. What do you mean?' "'I will tell you,' said Holmes. "'And the reason why I tell you is that I hope frankness may beget frankness.' What my next step may be will depend entirely upon the nature of your own defence. My defence? Yes, sir. My defence against what? Against the charge of killing Mortimer Tregenis. Sterndale mopped his forehead with his handkerchief. Upon my word, you're getting on, said he. Do all your successes depend upon the prodigious power of bluff? The bluff, said Holmes sternly, is upon your side, Dr. Leon Sterndale, and not upon mine. As a proof, I will tell you some of the facts upon which my conclusions are based. Of your return from Plymouth, allowing much of your property to go on to Africa, I will say nothing, save that it first informed me that you were one of the factors which are to be taken into account in reconstructing this drama. I came back. I have heard your reasons, and regard them as unconvincing and inadequate. We will pass that. You came down here to ask me whom I suspected. I refused to answer you. You then went to the vicarage, waited outside it for some time, and finally returned to your cottage. How do you know that? I followed you. I saw no one. That is what you may expect to see when I follow you. You spent a restless night at your cottage, and you formed certain plans, which in the early morning you proceeded to put into execution. Leaving your door just as day was breaking, you filled your pocket with some reddish gravel that was lying heaped beside your gate. Sterndale gave a violent start, and looked at Holmes in amazement. You then walked swiftly for the mile which separated you from the vicarage. You were wearing, I may remark, the same pair of ribbed tennis shoes which are at the present moment upon your feet. At the vicarage you pass through the orchard and the side hedge, coming out under the window of the lodger Tregenis. It was now daylight, 
but the household was not yet stirring. You drew some of the gravel from your pocket, and you threw it up at the window above you. Sterndale sprang to his feet. "'I believe that you are the devil himself!' he cried. Holmes smiled at the compliment. It took two or possibly three handfuls before the lodger came to the window. You beckoned him to come down. He dressed hurriedly and descended to his sitting-room. You entered by the window. There was an interview, a short one, during which you walked up and down the room. Then you passed out and closed the window, standing on the lawn outside, smoking a cigar and watching what occurred. Finally, after the death of Tregenis, you withdrew as you had come. Now, Dr. Sterndale, how do you justify such conduct, and what were the motives for your actions? If you prevaricate or trifle with me, I give you my assurance that the matter will pass out of my hands forever. Our visitor's face had turned ashen grey as he listened to the words of his accuser. Now he sat for some time in thought, with his face sunk in his hands. Then, with a sudden impulsive gesture, he plucked a photograph from his breast pocket and threw it on the rustic table before us. "'That is why I've done it,' said he. It showed the bust and face of a very beautiful woman. Holmes stooped over it. "'Brenda Tregenis,' said he. "'Yes, Brenda Tregenis,' repeated our visitor. "'For years I've loved her.' For years she loved me. There is the secret of that Cornish seclusion which people have marvelled at. It has brought me close to the one thing on earth that was dear to me. I could not marry her, for I have a wife who has left me for years, and yet whom, by the deplorable laws of England, I could not divorce. For years Brenda waited, for years I waited, and this is what we have waited for. A terrible sob shook his great frame and he clutched his throat under his brindled beard. Then, with an effort, he mastered himself and spoke on. The vicar knew. He was in our confidence. He would tell you that she was an angel upon earth. That was why he telegraphed to me and I returned. What was my baggage or Africa to me when I learned that such a fate had come upon my darling? There you have the missing clue to my action, Mr. Holmes. Proceed, said my friend. Dr. Sterndale drew from his pocket a paper packet and laid it upon that table. On the outside was written, Radix Pedis Diaboli, with a red poison label beneath it. He pushed it toward me. I understand that you are a doctor, sir. Have you ever heard of this preparation? Devil's foot root. No, I've never heard of it. It is no reflection upon your professional knowledge, said he. For I believe that, save for one sample in a laboratory at Buda, there is no other specimen in Europe. It has not yet found its way either into the pharmacopoeia or into the literature of toxicology. The root is shaped like a foot, half human, half goat-like, hence the fanciful name given by a botanical missionary. It's used as an ordeal poison by the medicine men in certain districts of West Africa, and is kept as a secret among them. This particular specimen I obtained under very extraordinary circumstances in the Yobangi country. He opened the paper as he spoke and disclosed a heap of reddish-brown snuff-like powder. "'Well, sir?' asked Holmes sternly. "'I am about to tell you, Mr. Holmes, 
all that actually occurred, for you already know so much that it's clearly to my interest that you should know all. I've already explained the relationship in which I stood to the Tregenis family. For the sake of the sister I was friendly with the brothers. There was a family quarrel about money which estranged this man Mortimer, but it was supposed to be made up, and I afterwards met him as I did the others. He was a sly, subtle, scheming man, and several things arose which gave me a suspicion of him, but I had no cause for any positive quarrel. One day, only a couple of weeks ago, he came down to my cottage, and I showed him some of my African curiosities. Among other things, I exhibited this powder, and I told him of its strange properties, how it stimulates those brain centres which control the emotion of fear, and how either madness or death is the fate of the unhappy native who is subjected to the ordeal by the priest of his tribe. I told him also how powerless European science would be to detect it. How he took it, I cannot say, for I never left the room, but there is no doubt that it was then, while I was opening cabinets and stooping to boxes, that he managed to abstract some of that devil's foot root. I well remember how he plied me with questions as to the amount and the time that he was needed for its effect, but I little dreamed that he could have a personal reason for asking. I thought no more of this matter until the vicar's telegram reached me at Plymouth. This villain had thought that I would be at sea before the news could reach me, and that I should be lost for years in Africa. But I returned at once, of course. I couldn't listen to the details without feeling assured that my poison had been used. I came round to see you on the chance that some other explanation had suggested itself to you. But there could be none. I was convinced that Mortimer Tregenis was the murderer, that for the sake of money and with the idea, perhaps, that if the other members of his family were all insane, he would be the sole guardian of their joint property. He'd used the devil's foot powder upon them, driven two of them out of their senses, and killed his sister Brenda, the one human being whom I've ever loved or who's ever loved me. There was his crime. What was to be his punishment? Should I appeal to the law? Where were my proofs? I knew that the facts were true, but could I help to make a jury of countrymen believe so fantastic a story? I might or I might not, but I could not afford to fail. My soul cried out for revenge. I have said to you once before, Mr. Holmes, that I have spent much of my life outside the law, as I have come at last to be a law to myself. So it was even now. I determined that the fate which he had given to others should be shared by himself. Either that, or I would do justice upon him with my own hand. In all England there can be no man who sets less value upon his own life than I do at the present moment. Now, I have told you all. You have yourself supplied the rest. I did as you say after a restless night, set off early from my cottage. I foresaw the difficulty of arousing him, so I gathered some gravel from the pile which you have mentioned, and I used it to throw up to his window. He came down and admitted me through the window of the sitting-room. I laid his offence before him. I told him that I had come both as judge and executioner. The wretch sank into a chair, paralysed at the sight of my revolver. I lit the lamp, but the powder above it, and stood outside the window, 
ready to carry out my threat to shoot him should he try to leave the room. In five minutes he died. My God, how he died. But my heart was flint, for he endured nothing which my innocent darling had not felt before him. There's my story, Mr. Holmes. Perhaps if you loved a woman, you'd have done as much yourself. At any rate, I'm in your hands. You can take what steps you like. As I've already said, there's no man living who can fear death less than I do. Holmes sat for some little time in silence. "'What were your plans?' he asked at last. "'I had intended to bury myself in Central Africa. My work there is but half finished.' "'Go and do the other half,' said Holmes. "'I, at least, am not prepared to prevent you.' Dr. Sterndale raised his giant figure, bowed gravely, and walked from the arbour. Holmes lit his pipe and handed me his pouch. "'Some fumes which are not poisonous would be a welcome change,' said he. "'I think you must agree, Watson, that it is not a case in which we are called upon to interfere. Our investigation has been independent, and our action shall be so also. You would not denounce the man?' "'Certainly not,' I answered. "'I have never loved, Watson, but if I did, and if the woman I loved had met such an end, I might act even as our lawless lion-hunter has done. Who knows? Well, Watson, I will not offend your intelligence by explaining what is obvious. The gravel upon the window-sill was, of course, the starting point of my research. It was unlike anything in the vicarage garden. Only when my attention had been drawn to Dr. Sterndale and his cottage did I find its counterpart. The lamp, shining in broad daylight, and the remains of powder upon the shield, were successive links in a fairly obvious chain. And now, my dear Watson, I think we may dismiss the matter from our mind, and go back with a clear conscience to the study of those Chaldean roots which are surely to be traced in the Cornish branch of the great Celtic speech. End of the Adventure of the Devil's Foot Adventure 8 in His Last Bow by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Adventure 8 His Last Bow. It was nine o'clock at night upon the 2nd of August, the most terrible August in the history of the world. One might have thought already that God's curse hung heavy over a degenerate world for there was an awesome hush and a feeling of vague expectancy in the sultry and stagnant air. The sun had long set, but one blood-red gash, like an open wound, lay low in the distant west. Above the stars were shining brightly, and below the lights of the shipping glimmered in the bay. The two famous Germans stood beside the stone parapet of the garden walk, with the long, low, heavily gabled house behind them, and they looked down upon the broad sweep of the beach at the foot of the great chalk cliff in which von Bork, like some wandering eagle, had perched himself four years before. They stood with their heads close together, talking in low, confidential tones. From below the two glowing ends of their cigars might have been the smouldering eyes of some malignant fiend looking down in the darkness. A remarkable man, this von Bork, 
a man who could hardly be matched among all the devoted agents of the Kaiser. It was his talents which had first recommended him for the English mission, the most important mission of all, but since he had taken it over those talents had become more and more manifest to the half-dozen people in the world who were really in touch with the truth. One of these was his present companion, Baron von Herling, the chief secretary of the legation, whose huge one-hundred-horsepower Benz car was blocking the country lane as it waited to waft its owner back to London. So far as I can judge the trend of events, you will probably be back in Berlin within the week, the secretary was saying. When you get there, my dear von Bork, I think you'll be surprised at the welcome you'll receive. I happen to know what is thought in the highest quarters of your work in this country. He was a huge man, the secretary, deep, broad and tall, with a slow, heavy fashion of speech which had been his main asset in his political career. Von Bork laughed. They are not very hard to deceive, he remarked. A more docile, simple folk could not be imagined. I don't know about that, said the other thoughtfully. They have strange limits, and one must learn to observe them. It is that surfaced simplicity of theirs which makes a trap for the stranger. One's first impression is that they are entirely soft. Then one comes suddenly upon something very hard, and you know that you have reached the limit and must adapt yourself to the fact. They have, for example, their insular conventions, which simply must be observed. Meaning good form, and what sort of thing? Von Bork sighed as one who had suffered much. Meaning British prejudice in all its queer manifestations. As an example, I may quote one of my own worst blunders. I can afford to talk of my blunders, for you know my work very well, to be aware of my successes. It was on my first arrival. I was invited to a weekend gathering at the country house of a cabinet minister. The conversation was amazingly indiscreet. Von Bork nodded. I've been there, said he dryly. Exactly. Well, I naturally sent a résumé of the information to Berlin. Unfortunately, our good Chancellor is a little heavy-handed in these matters, and he transmitted a remark which showed that he was aware of what had been said. This, of course, took the trail straight up to me. You've no idea of the harm that it did me. There was nothing soft about our British hosts on that occasion, I can assure you. I was two years living it down. Now you, with this sporting pose of yours. No, no, don't call it a pose. A pose is an artificial thing. This is quite natural. I am a born sportsman. I enjoy it. Well, that makes it more effective. You yacht against them, you hunt with them, you play polo. You match them in every game. Your four-in-hand takes a prize at Olympia. I've even heard that you go the length of boxing with the young officers. What is the result? Nobody takes you seriously. You are a good old sport, quite a decent fellow for a German. A hard-drinking, nightclub, knockabout town, devil-may-care young fellow. And all the time this quiet country house of yours is the centre of half the mischief in England. 
and the sporting squire, the most astute secret service man in Europe. Genius, my dear von Bork, genius. You flatter me, Baron, but certainly I may claim for four years in this country they have not been unproductive. I've never shown you my little store. Would you mind stepping in for a moment? The door of the study opened straight onto the terrace. Von Bork pushed it back, and, leading the way, he clicked the switch of the electric light. He then closed the door behind the bulky form which followed him, and carefully adjusted the heavy curtain over the latticed window. Only when all these precautions had been taken and tested did he turn his sunburned aquiline face to his guest. "'Some of my papers have gone,' said he. When my wife and the household left yesterday for flushing, they took the less important with them. I must, of course, claim the protection of the embassy for the others. Your name has already been filed as one of the personal suite. There will be no difficulties for you or your baggage. Of course, it is just possible that we may not have to go. England may leave France to her fate. We are sure that there is no binding treaty between them. And Belgium? Yes, and Belgium too. Von Bork shook his head. I don't see how that could be. There is a definite treaty there. She could never recover from such a humiliation. She would at least have peace for the moment. But her honour! Tut, my dear sir, we live in a utilitarian age. Honour is a medieval conception. Besides, England is not ready. It is an inconceivable thing, but even our special war tax of fifteen million, which one would think made our purpose as clear as if we had advertised it on the front page of the Times, has not roused these people from their slumbers. Here and there one hears a question. It is my business to find an answer. Here and there also there is an irritation. It is my business to soothe it. But I can assure you that so far as the essentials go, the storage of munitions, the preparation for submarine attack, the arrangements for making high explosives, nothing is prepared. How then can England come in, especially when we have stirred her up such a devil's brew of Irish civil war, window-breaking furies, and God knows what, to keep her thoughts at home? She must think of her future. Ah, that is another matter. I fancy that in the future we have our own very definite plans about England, and that your information will be very vital to us. It is today or tomorrow with Mr. John Bull. If he prefers today, we are perfectly ready. If it is tomorrow, we shall be more ready still. I should think they would be wiser to fight with allies than without them. But that is their own affair. This week is their week of destiny. But you were speaking of your papers. He sat in the armchair with the light shining upon his broad, bald head, while he puffed sedately at his cigar. The large, oak-panelled, book-lined room had a curtain hung in the further corner. When this was drawn, it disclosed a large, brass-bound safe. Von Bork detached a small key from his watch-chain, and after some considerable manipulation of the lock, he swung open the heavy door.
"'Look!' said he, standing clear with a wave of his hand. The light shone vividly into the open safe, and the secretary of the embassy gazed with an absorbed interest at the rows of stuffed pigeonholes with which it was furnished. Each pigeonhole had its label, and his eyes, as he glanced along them, read a long series of such titles as Fords, Harbour Defences, Aeroplanes, Ireland, Egypt, Portsmouth Forts, the Channel, Rosyth, and a score of others. Each compartment was bristling with papers and plans. "'Colossal!' said the secretary, putting down his cigar. He softly clapped his fat hands. "'And in all four years, Baron, not such a bad show for the hard-drinking, hard-riding country squire, but the gem of my collection is coming, and there is the setting already for it.' He pointed to a space over which naval signals was printed. "'But you have a good dossier there already. Out of date and waste paper. The Admiralty in some way got the alarm, and every code has been changed. It was a blow, Baron, the worst setback in my whole campaign. But thanks to my cheque-book, and the good Altamont, all will be well to-night.' The Baron looked at his watch, and gave a guttural exclamation of disappointment. "'Well, I can really wait no longer. You can imagine that things are moving at present in Carlton Terrace, and that we have all to be at our posts. I had hoped to be able to bring news of your great coup. Did Altamont name no hour?' Von Bork pushed over a telegram. "'We'll come without fail to-night.' and bring new sparking plugs, Altamont. Sparking plugs, eh? You see, he poses as a motor expert, and I keep a full garage. In our code everything likely to come up is named after some spare part. If he talks of a radiator, it is a battleship, of an oil pump, a cruiser, and so on. Sparking plugs are naval signals. "'From Portsmouth at midday,' said the secretary, examining the superscription. "'By the way, what do you give him?' Five hundred pounds for this particular job. Of course, he has a salary as well.' "'The greedy rogue. They are useful, these traitors, but I grudge them their blood money.' "'I grudge Altamont nothing. He is a wonderful worker.' If I pay him well, at least he delivers the goods to use his own phrase. Besides, he is not a traitor. I assure you that our most pan-Germanic Junker is a sucking dove in his feelings towards England as compared with a real bitter Irish-American. Oh, an Irish-American! If you heard him talk, you would not doubt it. Sometimes, I assure you, I can hardly understand him. He seems to have declared war on the king's English as well as on the English king. Must you really go? He may be here any moment. No, I am sorry, but I have already overstayed my time. We shall expect you early to-morrow, and when you get that signal-book through the little door on the Duke of York's steps, you can put a triumphant fini to your record in England. What? Toquet? He indicated a heavily sealed, dust-covered bottle, which stood with two high glasses upon a salver. "'May I offer you a glass before your journey?' "'No, thanks. But it looks like revelry. Altamont has a nice taste in vines, 
and he took a fancy to my toquet. He is a touchy fellow and needs humouring in small things. I have to study him, I assure you. They had strolled out onto the terrace again, and along it to the further end, where, at a touch from the baron's chauffeur, the great car shivered and chuckled. "'Those are the lights of Harwich, I suppose,' said the secretary, pulling on his dust-coat. "'How still and peaceful it all seems. There may be other lights within the week, and the English coast a less tranquil place. The heavens, too, may not be quite so peaceful, if all that the good Zeppelin promises us comes true. By the way, who is that?' Only one window showed a light behind them. In it there stood a lamp, and beside it, seated at a table, was a dear old ruddy-faced woman in a country cap. She was bending over her knitting, and stopping occasionally to stroke a large black cat upon a stool beside her. "'That is Martha, as the only servant I have left.' The secretary chuckled. "'She might almost personify Britannia,' said he. With her complete self-absorption and general air of comfortable somnolence. Well, au revoir, von Bock. In the final wave of his hand he sprang into the car, and a moment later the two golden cones from the headlights shot through the darkness. The secretary lay back in the cushions of the luxurious limousine, with his thoughts so full of the impending European tragedy that he hardly observed that as his car swung round the village street it nearly passed over a little ford coming in the opposite direction. Von Bork walked slowly back to the study when the last gleams of the motor-lamps had faded into the distance. As he passed, he observed that his old housekeeper had put out her lamp and retired. It was a new experience to him, the silence and darkness of his widespread house, for his family and household had been a large one. It was a relief to him, however, to think that they were all in safety, and that, but for that one old woman who had lingered in the kitchen, he had the whole place to himself. There was a good deal of tidying up to do inside his study, and he set himself to do it until his keen, handsome face was flushed with the heat of the burning papers. A leather valise stood beside his table, and into this he began to pack very neatly and systematically the precious contents of his safe. He had hardly got started with the work, however, when his quick ears caught the sounds of a distant car. Instantly he gave an exclamation of satisfaction, strapped up the valise, shut the safe, locked it, and hurried out onto the terrace. He was just in time to see the lights of a small car come to a halt at the gate. A passenger sprang out of it and advanced swiftly toward him, while the chauffeur, a heavily built elderly man with a grey moustache settled down like one who resigns himself to a long vigil. Well, asked von Bork eagerly, running forward to meet his visitor. For answer, the man waved a small brown paper parcel triumphantly above his head. You can give me the glad hand tonight, mister, he cried. I'm bringing home the bacon at last. The signals! Same as I said in my cable. Every last one of them. Semaphore, lamp, code, Marconi. A copy, mind you, not the original. That was too dangerous. But it's the real goods, and you can lay to that. He slapped the German upon the shoulder with a rough familiarity from which the other winced. 
"'Come in,' he said. "'I'm all alone in the house. I was only waiting for this. Of course, a copy is better than the original. If an original were missing, they would change the whole thing. You think it's all safe about the copy?' The Irish-American had entered the study and stretched his long limbs from the armchair. He was a tall, gaunt man of sixty, with clear-cut features and a small goatee beard, which gave him a general resemblance to the caricatures of Uncle Sam. A half-smoked, sodden cigar hung from the corner of his mouth, and as he sat down he struck a match and relit it. "'Making ready for a move?' he remarked as he looked round him. "'Say, mister,' he added as his eyes fell upon the safe, from which the curtain was now removed, "'you don't tell me you keep your papers in that.' "'Why not?' "'Gosh, in a wide-open contraption like that, "'and they reckon you to be some spy? "'Why, a Yankee crook would be into that with a can-opener. "'If I'd known then any letter of mine was going to lie loose in a thing like that, "'I'd have been a mug to write to you at all.' "'It would puzzle any crook to force that safe,' von Bork answered. "'You won't cut that metal with any tool.' "'But the lock?' "'No, it's a double-combination lock.' "'You know what that is.' "'Search me,' said the American. "'Well, you need a word as well as a set of figures before you can get the lock to work.' He rose and showed a double radiating disc round the keyhole. "'This outer one is for the letters. The inner one for the figures.' "'Well, well, that's fine.' "'So it's not quite as simple as you thought. It was four years ago that I had it made, and—' "'What do you think I chose for the word and figures?' "'It's beyond me.' "'Well, I chose August for the word, and 1914 for the figures. And here we are.' The American's face showed his surprise and admiration. "'My, but that was smart. You had it down to a fine thing.' "'Yes, a few of us even then could have guessed the date.' Here it is, and I'm shutting down tomorrow morning. Well, I guess you'll have to fix me up also. I'm not staying in this goldam country all my lonesome. In a week or less, from what I see, John Bull will be on his hind legs and fair ramping. I'd rather watch him from over the water. But you're an American citizen. Well, so is Jack James, an American citizen. But he's doing time in Portland all the same. It cuts no ice with a British copper to tell him you're an American citizen. It's British law and order over here, says he. By the way, mister, talking of Jack James, it seems to me you don't do much to cover your men. What do you mean? Von Bork asked sharply. Well, you're their employer, ain't you? It's up to you to see they don't fall down. But they do fall down, and then when did you ever pick em up? There's James— it was James' own fault. You know that yourself. He was too self-willed for the job. James was a bonehead, I give you that. Then there was Hollis. The man was mad. Well, he went a bit woozy toward the end. It's enough to make a man bughouse when he has to play a part from morning to night with a hundred guys, all ready to set the coppers wise to him. But now there's Steiner. Von Bork started violently, and his ruddy face turned a shade paler. "'What about Steiner?' "'Well, they got him, that's all. 
They raided his store last night, and he and his papers are all in Portsmouth jail. You'll go off, and he, poor devil, will have to stand the racket, and lucky if he gets off with his life. That's why I went to get over the water as soon as you do. Von Bork was a strong, self-contained man, but it was easy to see that the news had shaken him. "'How could they have got on to Steiner?' he muttered. "'That's the worst blow yet.' "'Well, you nearly had a worse one, for I believe they're not far off me.' "'You don't mean that?' "'Sure thing. My landlady down Frattenway had some inquiries, and when I heard of it I guessed it was time for me to hustle.' But what I want to know, mister, is how the coppers knew these things. Steiner is the fifth man you've lost since I signed on with you, and I know the name of the sixth if I don't get a move on. How do you explain it? And ain't you ashamed to see your men go down like this? Von Bork flushed crimson. How dare you speak in such a way? If I didn't dare things, mister, I wouldn't be in your service. But I'll tell you straight what's in my mind. I've heard that with you German politicians, when an agent has done his work, you're not sorry to see him put away. Von Bork sprang to his feet. Do you dare to suggest that I have given away my own agents? I don't stand for that, mister. But there's a stool pigeon or a cross somewhere, and it's up to you to find out where it is. Anyhow, I'm taking no more chances. It's me for little Holland, and the sooner the better. Von Bork had mastered his anger. We have been allies too long to quarrel. Now at the very hour of victory, he said. You've done splendid work, and taken risks, and I can't forget it. By all means go to Holland, and you can get a boat from Rotterdam to New York. No other line will be safe for a week from now. I'll take that book and pack it with the rest. The American held a small parcel in his hand but made no motion to give it up. "'What about the dough?' he asked. "'The what?' "'The boodle. The reward. The five hundred pounds. The gunner turned damn nasty at the last, and I had to square him with an extra hundred dollars, or it would have been Nitsky for you and me. "'Nothing doing,' says he, and he meant it. But the last hundred did it. It's cost me two hundred pound from first to last.' so it isn't likely I give it up without getting my wad. Von Bork smiled with some bitterness. You don't seem to have a very high opinion of my honour, said he. You want the money before you give up the book. Well, mister, it is a business proposition. All right, half your way. He sat down at the table and scribbled a cheque, which he tore from the book, but he refrained from handing it to his companion. "'After all, since we are to be on such terms, Mr. Altamont,' said he, "'I don't see why I should trust you any more than you trust me. "'Do you understand?' he added, looking back over his shoulder at the American. "'There's a cheque upon the table. "'I claim the right to examine that parcel before you pick the money up.' The American passed it over without a word. Von Bork undid a winding of string and two wrappers of paper. Then he sat gazing for a moment in silent amazement at a small blue book which lay before him. Across the cover was printed in golden letters, Practical Handbook of Bee Culture. 
Only for one instant did the master spy glare at this strangely irrelevant inscription. The next he was gripped at the back of his neck by a grasp of iron, and a chloroformed sponge was held in front of his writhing face. "'Another glass, Watson?' said Mr. Sherlock Holmes, as he extended the bottle of imperial toquet. The thick-set chauffeur, who had seated himself by the table, pushed forward his glass with some eagerness. "'It is a good wine, Holmes.' "'A remarkable wine, Watson. Our friend upon the sofa has assured me that it is from Franz Josef's special cellar at the Schönbrunn Palace. Might I trouble you to open the window? For chloroform vapour does not help the palate.' The safe was ajar, and Holmes, standing in front of it, was removing dossier after dossier, swiftly examining each, and then packing it neatly in von Bork's valise. The German lay upon the sofa, sleeping stertorously, with a strap round his upper arms and another around his legs. "'We need not hurry ourselves, Watson. We are safe from interruption. Would you mind touching the bell? There is no one in the house except old Martha, who has played her part to admiration. I got her the situation here when first I took the matter up. Ah, Martha, you will be glad to hear that all is well.' The pleasant old lady had appeared in the doorway. She curtsied with a smile to Mr. Holmes, but glanced with some apprehension at the figure upon the sofa. "'It is all right, Martha. He has not been hurt at all.' "'I am glad of that, Mr. Holmes. According to his lights, he has been a kind master. He wanted me to go with his wife to Germany yesterday, but that would hardly have suited your plans, would it, sir?' "'No, indeed, Martha.' So long as you were here, I was easy in my mind. We waited some time for your signal to-night. It was the secretary, sir. I know. His car passed ours. I thought he would never go. I knew that it would not suit your plan, sir, to find him here. No, indeed. Well, it only meant that we waited half an hour or so until I saw your lamp go out, and knew that the coast was clear. You can report to me to-morrow in London, Martha, at Claridge's Hotel. Very good, sir. I suppose you have everything ready to leave? Yes, sir. He posted seven letters to-day. I have the addresses as usual. Very good, Martha. I will look into them to-morrow. Good night. These papers, he continued as the old lady vanished, are not of very great importance for, of course, the information which they represent has been sent off long ago to the German government. These are the originals which could not safely be got out of the country. Then they're of no use. I should not go so far as to say that, Watson. They will at least show our people what is known and what is not. I may say that a good many of these papers have come through me, and I need not add are thoroughly untrustworthy. It would brighten my declining years to see a German cruiser navigating the Solent according to the minefield plans which I have furnished. But you, Watson—he stopped his work and took his old friend by the shoulders—I've hardly seen you in the light yet. How have the years used you? You look the same blithe boy as ever. I feel twenty years younger, Holmes. I've seldom felt so happy as when I got your wire asking me to meet you at Harwich with the car. But you, Holmes, you have changed very little, save for that horrible goatee. These are the sacrifices one makes for one's country, Watson, said Holmes, 
pulling at his little tuft. "'Tomorrow it will be but a dreadful memory. With my hair cut and a few other superficial changes, I shall no doubt reappear at Claridge's tomorrow, as I was before this American stunt. I beg your pardon, Watson. My well of English seems to be permanently defiled. Before this American job came my way.' "'But you've retired, Holmes. We heard of you as living the life of a hermit among your bees and your books in a small farm upon the South Downs.' "'Exactly, Watson. Here is the fruit of my leisured ease, the magnum opus of my latter years.' He picked up the volume from the table, and read out the whole title. "'Practical Handbook of Bee Culture, with some observations upon the segregation of the Queen.' "'Alone I did it. Behold the fruit of pensive nights and laborious days, when I watched the little working gangs as once I watched the criminal world of London. But how did you get to work again? Ah, I have often marvelled at it myself. The foreign minister alone I could have withstood, but when the Premier also deigned to visit my humble roof, the fact is, Watson, that this gentleman upon the sofa was a bit too good for our people. He was in a class by himself. Things were going wrong, and no one could understand why they were going wrong. Agents were suspected or even caught, but there was evidence of some strong and secret central force. It was absolutely necessary to expose it. Strong pressure was brought upon me to look into the matter. It has cost me two years, Watson, but they have not been devoid of excitement. When I say that I started my pilgrimage at Chicago, graduated in an Irish secret society at Buffalo, gave serious trouble to the constabulary at Skibarine, and so eventually caught the eye of a subordinate agent of von Bork, who recommended me as a likely man, you will realise that the matter was complex. Since then I have been honoured by his confidence, which has not prevented most of his plans going subtly wrong, and five of his best agents being in prison. I watched them, Watson and I picked them as they ripened. Well, sir, I hope that you are none the worse." The last remark was addressed to von Bork himself, who, after much gasping and blinking, had lain quietly listening to Holmes's statement. He broke out now into a furious stream of German invective, his face convulsed with passion. Holmes continued his swift investigation of documents, while his prisoner cursed and swore. Though unmusical, German is the most expressive of all languages, he observed when von Bork had stopped from pure exhaustion. Hello? Hello? he added as he looked hard at the corner of a tracing before putting it in the box. This should put another bird in the cage. I had no idea that the paymaster was such a rascal, though I have long had an eye upon him. Mr. von Bork, you have a great deal to answer for. The prisoner had raised himself with some difficulty upon the sofa, and was staring with a strange mixture of amazement and hatred at his captor. "'I shall get level with you, Altamont,' he said, speaking with slow deliberation. "'If it takes me all my life, I shall get level with you.' "'The old sweet song,' said Holmes. "'How often have I heard it in days gone by?' It was a favourite ditty of the late lamented Professor Moriarty. Colonel Sebastian Moran has also been known to warble it. And yet I live and keep bees upon the South Downs. Curse you, you double traitor! 
cried the German, straining against his bonds and glaring murder from his furious eyes. "'No, no, it is not so bad as that,' said Holmes, smiling. "'As my speech surely shows you, Mr. Altamont of Chicago had no existence, in fact. I used him, and he is gone. Then who are you? It is really immaterial who I am. But since the matter seems to interest you, Mr. von Bork, I may say that this is not my first acquaintance with the members of your family. I have done a good deal of business in Germany in the past, and my name is probably familiar to you. I would wish to know it, said the Prussian grimly. It was I who brought about the separation between Irene Adler and the late King of Bohemia when your cousin Heinrich was the imperial envoy. It was I also who saved from murder by the nihilist Klopmann, Count von and zu Grafenstein, who was your mother's elder brother. It was I—' Von Bork sat up in amazement. "'There is only one man,' he cried. "'Exactly,' said Holmes. Von Bork groaned and sank back on the sofa. "'And most of that information came through you,' he cried. "'What is it worth? What have I done? It is my ruin for ever.' "'It is certainly a little untrustworthy,' said Holmes. "'It will require some checking, and you have little time to check it. Your admiral may find the new guns rather larger than he expects, and the cruisers perhaps a trifle faster.' Von Bork clutched at his own throat in despair. "'There are a good many other points of detail which will, no doubt, come to light in good time. But you have one quality which is very rare in a German, Mr. Von Bork. You are a sportsman, and you will bear me no ill-will when you realise that you, who have outwitted so many other people, have at last been outwitted yourself. After all, you have done your best for your country.' and I have done my best for mine, and what could be more natural? Besides, he added not unkindly, as he laid his hand upon the shoulder of the prostrate man, it is better than to fall before some ignoble foe. These papers are now ready, Watson. If you will help me with our prisoner, I think that we may get started for London at once. It was no easy task to move von Bork, for he was a strong and a desperate man. Finally, holding either arm, the two friends walked him very slowly down the garden walk which he had trod with such proud confidence when he received the congratulations of the famous diplomatist only a few hours before. After a short final struggle he was hoisted, still bound hand and foot, into the spare seat of the little car. His precious valise was wedged in beside him. "'I trust that you are as comfortable as circumstances permit?' said Holmes, when the final arrangements were made. "'Should I be guilty of a liberty if I lit a cigar and placed it between your lips?' But all amenities were wasted upon the angry German. "'I suppose you realise, Mr. Sherlock Holmes,' said he, "'that if your government bears you out in this treatment it becomes an act of war.' "'What about your government and all this treatment?' said Holmes, tapping the valise. You are a private individual. You have no warrant for my arrest. The whole proceeding is absolutely illegal and outrageous. Absolutely, said Holmes. Kidnapping a German subject. And stealing his private papers. Well, you realize your position. You and your accomplice here. 
if I were to shout for help as we pass through the village? My dear sir, if you did anything so foolish, you would probably enlarge the two limited titles of our village inns by giving us the dangling Prussian as a signpost. The Englishman is a patient creature, but at present his temper is a little inflamed, and it would be as well not to try him too far. No, Mr. von Bork, you will go with us, in a quiet, sensible fashion, to Scotland Yard, whence you can send for your friend, Baron von Herling, and see if even now you may not fill that place which he has reserved for you in the ambassadorial suite. As to you, Watson, you are joining us with your old service, as I understand, so London won't be out of your way. Stand with me here upon the terrace, for it may be the last quiet talk that we shall ever have." The two friends chatted in intimate converse for a few minutes, recalling once again the days of the past, while their prisoner vainly wriggled to undo the bonds that held him. As they turned to the car, Holmes pointed back to the moonlit sea and shook a thoughtful head. "'There's an east wind coming, Watson.' "'I think not, Holmes. It is very warm.' "'Good old Watson. You are the one fixed point in a changing age. There's an east wind coming all the same. Such a wind as never blew on England yet.' It will be cold and bitter, Watson, and a good many of us may wither before its blast. But it's God's own wind, none the less, and a cleaner, better, stronger land will lie in the sunshine when the storm has cleared. Start her up, Watson, for it's time that we were on our way. I have a cheque for five hundred pounds, which should be cashed early, for the drawer is quite capable of stopping it, if he can. End of Adventure 8 and the end of His Last Bow by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This was read by David Clark. VerySmallRocks.io and BGCoffee.net Thank you for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.